the military industrial complex is is far scarier today than it was when Eisenhower warned us when he was leaving office about the, the dangers of the military industrial complex. And, and they're a major part of why this system of bases is entrenched around the world and part of why the system of military invention, intervention of wars is so deeply entrenched. And, and they're, of course, a major barrier thus to, to changing the system because people are making so much money off war and off this system of war, uh, primarily, you know, major corporations and and uh, their uh, officials and elites um, but of course they're they're ordinary folks who are who are making money off the, the system of war as well and and we need a fundamental transformation um, you know rather than the, the the military budget today that is so far out of whack uh, and out of any proportion to the threats facing the United States it's uh, to say it's a, a waste of money is a tremendous understatement. That was David Vine, and you're listening to USA TBD, a podcast exploring critical issues facing America today, of which there are many. Social justice causes, systemic racial oppression chief among them, an outdated, visionless, and unsustainable foreign policy, a broken food system in which we are literally eating ourselves to death, and a political system so dysfunctional it feels almost beyond reform. All of this unfolding within a world of accelerating exponential technological change and in a country that doesn't really know itself, where myths and half-truths still define the narratives we believe in and live by. So who are we really, deep down? And how do we get here? What's actually happening today, right now? And where do we go from here, together, as a nation and a people, in a future that is very much to be determined? I'm your host, Dave Bernath. My guest today is David Vine, professor of anthropology at American University. His absorbing and distressing 2015 book, Base Nation, How U.S. Military Bases Abroad Harm America and the World, deconstructs the conventional wisdom underpinning our nation's vast global network of military installations and illuminates the many destructive consequences they cause. He joined me from his office in Washington, D.C. David, thanks for being on the show. Sure, it's my pleasure. So let's just uh, let's get it right into it at a high level, um, in terms of uh, what your book, Base Nation, was all about. If you could just kind of kind of walk me through, uh, you know, at a thirty thousand foot view, which I guess is an odd metaphor to use when you're talking about military, <laughs> but sort of the you know the main thesis of your of your book. Well, in some ways, yeah, the thirty thousand foot view is helpful because it. The book really is a, a global examination of this fairly massive collection of U.S. military bases outside the United States that, that the United States has developed almost uh, since independence. Um, for the most part, it's, it's emerged uh, in World War II and, and, and since then, such that today we have uh, upwards of 800 military bases in around 80 countries. The exact numbers are actually quite hard to pin down because the Pentagon is not very, and the military are not very transparent about 
the location of bases and um, how many bases. Um, but the, the 800 number comes from Pentagon uh, numbers, uh, an annual count that they do. And, um, and then uh, the, their count leaves off a number of, of both obvious and secretive uh, bases. And I've put together a, a spreadsheet and, and keep track of them as best I can. So around 800 in about 80 countries is a good estimate. And, you know, these bases are largely taken for granted and um, get little attention in the media um, and have been taken for granted and this seem to be normal. Um, since World War II, that normal that there'd be thousands, tens of thousands of U.S. troops on German soil and Japanese soil um, uh, in Italy, South Korea, um, literally around the globe, um, each continent uh, until recently, even Antarctica. Um, and uh, so the book is trying to ask, why do we have all these bases uh, encircling the globe? Um, are they, as has been claimed, are they making us safer? Are they, uh, what sort of impacts are they having on local communities? Uh, and um, do we need them? What are they costing U.S. Right. taxpayers? Yeah. Um, and uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a close examination of this entire system and, and um, asking whether, whether um, it makes any sense. And, I, I, you know, as the subtitle of the book suggests, um, how, how U.S. military bases abroad harm America and the world. I think in a whole variety of ways, U.S. bases abroad are, are, are quite damaging to, to people in the United States and to people worldwide. We can, uh, you know, and, and your book covers obviously a variety of those facets from environmental damage to impacts on local communities to getting in bed with undemocratic regimes or leaders uh, to even the notion of the supposed security actually causing insecurity by you know, indirectly putting or actually directly putting pressure on certain countries because of the proximity. Let's start with that one, because I think that one's really kind of interesting in this post-North Korea moment, you know, with Guam. Can you talk a little bit about how this, the sort of the inverse of what is supposedly this security-based concept, but actually uh, might be essentially creating the problems that it purports to be uh, solving or making better? Yeah, that's uh, a particularly troubling dimension of these bases, especially when it comes to China, but also the Korean Peninsula. Uh, so these bases are, you know, claimed to be and have been since World War II essential to U.S. national security. It's essential that the United States maintains these hundreds of bases and hundreds of thousands of troops outside the United States uh, to, to protect its security. Um, again, uh, something that's just been accepted and, and gone unquestioned. Um, but I, I think it helps to sort of put the shoe on the other foot, uh, to use something of a, a metaphor to, to ask ourselves how it would feel if China were to put a single Chinese military base anywhere near the borders of the United States. The United States now surrounds China with literally hundreds of bases in uh, South Korea and Japan and Guam um, and elsewhere, and the same as the case with Russia. Um, and I think we need only look to the the Cold War when when uh, the Soviet Union put a missile base in Cuba, ninety miles from from Florida, it led to the most dangerous moment of the twentieth century and uh, right. almost to a nuclear exchange. I think if 
if China or Russia were to put a single base today anywhere near U.S. borders in the Caribbean or or anywhere in Canada and Mexico, there'd be a huge call for uh, some military response. And uh, meanwhile, the United States has been building up its its bases and, and forces of late in, in the Asia-Pacific region in particular, um, allegedly to, to counter the growing power, military, and economic of China um, in a way, though, that, that is only encouraging China to further build up its military. Right. And sadly, I think making a, a conflict between the United States and China more likely rather than less. Now, you're a, you're a professor of anthropology, and so I think it's interesting to kind of dial in and out of these issues we're discussing as it relates to the, the U.S. society and our awareness or lack of awareness of even what and who we are as a country on a global stage. And so I'm curious how you see that because, you know, uh, that exact um, metaphor, or should we say, what was it, boot on the other foot, right? Maybe it's better than shoe <laughs> of, uh, you know, how would we feel? You know, wh- why is it that you think that we have this this sort of cognitive dissonance where we, we have an empire, but we don't think of it as an empire? We have this vast network of bases, as you say, essentially encircling some countries if you were in the, from their perspective, but we just aren't able to see it that way for whatever reason, either because we, our default is that, of course, we are the preeminent power and this is the way it should be, or we're just not able to step outside of our own ethnocentric view as a nation and see it fresh. I mean, from what do, what do you think about that question? Because obviously we need the citizens of the country to start to pivot on this or else they're not going to push for change. And the inertia here is massive. It's a fantastic question and, and, and one that I was, I was really trying to, in a way, take on at least when it came to this network of bases around the globe to uh, expose something that, that has been taken for granted that people don't see to, to try to encourage people to see uh, U.S. bases from the perspective of someone living in, in Okinawa, for example. Right. How would it feel to live next to, uh, you know, miles and miles and miles of U.S. <clears throat> base fence line? Fence line. Um, how would it feel to live next to, you know, high-powered U.S. military weaponry uh, and to have helicopters flying over your house and your school and um, senior citizen centers on a daily basis. Right. Um, but I, I think the answer to, you know, your really good question is, is a complicated one. In some sense, everyone is ethnocentric and right. you know, tends to see things from their own perspective. I think there are some particular problems in the United States because the United States has grown into uh, an empire that became unchallenged and, and after the end of the Cold War was the only... Uh, uh, superpower and empire, and uh, I think in particular the the you know the United States emerging from World War II as the victorious one of the victors, um, and in a position of unparalleled global power, um, has made it difficult for people to see anything see the United States as anything but a a, a source for good in the world, um, and right and on the domestic so, front. Yeah, and, and, and so that anything the United States does, it must be good. It's sort of a uh, ingrained assumption for, for me, too. Um, right. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, I think if, if we stop for a second and ask, you know, how would 
you feel if you were Chinese faced with hundreds of bases surrounding your country, uh, it becomes a little bit easier to see that these bases that the United States claims are defensive would actually feel quite offensive and threatening. Right. Yep. Um, yeah, I had Susie Hansen on the show, uh, a journalist, writer who lives in Turkey, wrote a book, a great book about her kind of awakening uh, to see an America differently. She talks about she talks about two Americas, the America that people look up to as a free society when all the positives of living here, but then the government and its global footprint of influence and what have you. Um, it does feel like there's a bit of a, yeah, it's like two different two different things are happening. People are listening to our music and watching our movies, and then they're having to deal with all the things that, that somewhat flow from the network of military activity that, that you describe in the book. Um, can you can, yes. you can you talk a little bit about, because obviously there's multiple things, but I, just a little bit about some of those impacts, uh, the environmental, the social, uh, the sexual trafficking that are, that kind of come with a lot of these presences throughout the world. Yeah, I, th I think the, the, the point you, know, you were making just now is a, is a really important one. And I think, you know, often history gets described in political science and uh, the way the media talks about the world, they often talk about countries as if they were people or mm -hmm. as if they were some, had some unchanging essence when the United States is not really a, a thing. There are people who live in the United States and there are leaders that, that make military policy and launch wars and, um, and there are members of the military and these are very distinct groups of people. And um, so when I think about the impacts of U.S. bases around the world, they actually begin with the U.S. military personnel um, who are in a range of ways damaged by this global collection of bases that sends them uh, for months and often years at a time around the world. And you know, in some ways, many enjoy that sort of travel. Of course, that was sort of the tagline for the U.S. Navy for a long time. Um, but it also comes at the cost of being separated from your family frequently, or when family can travel with you, it, it interrupts their lives. They have to, spouses, mostly women, have to give up jobs frequently to right. travel with their uh, member of the military. Um, children suffer the uh, from frequent moves and having to leave school. Um, and But that's just the beginning, because uh, there are, as you mentioned earlier, um, you know, some very serious impacts on, on local communities, the local environment. Basically, military bases are not good for the environment. Right. <laughs> yeah. Full know, stop. Collections. Yeah. yeah it doesn't matter whose base it is. They, they, you know, are collections of high-powered weaponry, hazardous materials of various kinds, lots of fuel, um, lots of things that, that aren't good for the environment. Um, and so, but the, the track record of, of U.S. bases abroad has been frequently particularly poor. So we have, there's a documented record of damaging local environments. Um, and then, as, as you mentioned as well, you know, another major claim of uh, maintaining U.S. bases abroad, especially in the Cold War, but to this day, is that these bases spread democracy. Right. The, the track record has been the exact opposite uh, for the most part, that, that bases uh, have frequently... Uh, been located in, in in countries led by undemocratic regimes, dictators, often murderous regimes. We need only look at Saudi Arabia, uh, almost all of the other countries in the Persian Gulf where the U.S. has bases. These are undemocratic countries, um, but also some um, Thailand and uh, military uh, 
governments in, in Africa as well, um, where U.S. bases are, are propping up undemocratic regimes and actually blocking the spread of democracy. Bases have frequently displaced local people from their lands, um, often indigenous people, generally people of color around the world. Um, and uh, the list goes on. The economic impacts of bases are very complicated. Some benefit from from the presence of U.S. bases, but uh, frequently bases are not the foundation for a thriving economy. And if anyone has seen a base town here in the United States and, and what goes on right outside the gates, frequently they are filled with red light districts. And right. It's not the picture of a thriving, uh, successful economy, um, even if some, of course, do benefit economically. Uh, so this, this is just uh, the beginning of, of a range of ways in which both locals and people in the United States are, are harmed. The other big one that I, I think is really important to note is what are these bases costing us? Yes. Um, are there are there better ways we could protect be protecting our security and spending our money? Um, effectively, most people in the U.S. military hadn't looked into this. They just assumed that bases abroad were a good deal because Japan pays us some money, Korea pays us some money to be there, right. um, some the Persian Gulf states. Um, but in fact, bases, and, and this comes from the RAND Corporation, a government-sponsored um, research center, uh, that bases abroad are, in almost every case, much more expensive than they are uh, when it's a domestic base. That to, to keep a single member of the military in Japan or Germany or Italy or Korea or, or most anywhere it's much more expensive than keeping them in Louisiana or Texas or right. Florida or California. Um, so I, I was able to dive into the Pentagon budget and found that the United States is spending on average every year around $150 billion uh, to maintain both bases and troops abroad. Mm. That's $150 billion with a B. Yeah. And that's larger than the size of any government agency except the the Department of Defense itself, and uh, recently the, the Department of Veterans Affairs. Um, but that, that budget alone far outstrips the budget of the Department of State, for example, the diplomatic arm of the United States, let alone Department of Education, or right. Health and Human Services. Um, you know, we can, we can, I'd love to pivot back to a couple of things in terms of like sure. you, how you got into this with, with what you wrote about the Diego Garcia thing, but I'm curious, just in, almost like as a, as a pause point to just talk about how you foresee the prospects for change, because, you know, the, the cynical historian part of me says, you know, these things are just going to take, you know, an incredibly long time to slowly crumble and change. And everybody who's got a vested interest in the status quo is going to cling to it, you know, with all their might for a variety of reasons, the contractors, the military, human nature. Um, and yet, you know, the world is changing. China is rising. We don't have a lot of dough floating around as a country. Um, how, how do you see, you know, obviously your book was a part of an effort to kind of raise the, create the debate and you're in DC, you're based there teaching there. So how do you see the, the climate you think for this, this, this space uh, in terms of the prospects for change? It's it's challenging, um, as as you said. There there are a lot of vested interests, um, especially economic interests, that that would like to see the status quo continued. Uh, there are people in the military who would like to see the status quo continued uh, because their jobs depend on it. You don't make a career closing a base, typically. Right. Um, 
And and it's not, you know, people aren't cynically doing this. There are also people who genuinely believe that that the United States must maintain this huge collection of bases abroad to protect its security. But I think largely that's because it's just become sort of the conventional wisdom, something of a dogma right. in foreign policy circles. And um, but but I am actually quite encouraged that this is one area where there is a growing uh, amount of questioning going on across the political spectrum. It's one of those rare bipartisan issues where you see people from right to left, libertarians, um, others on the right, people on the far left, who are beginning to question why we have all these bases. Um, and they're, they're, they're questioning them on different grounds. Some are you know, particularly concerned about the tremendous expense of the bases. Right. Um, others are concerned about the human rights impact. Others are concerned about the interventionist, really imperial foreign policy and the launching of wars that these bases enable. Right. Um, so they're, they're coming at it for and, and coming to question the global network of bases for different reasons. But I, I, I think there's a lot of reason for optimism and have been actually working together with some people across the political spectrum here in D.C., um, people in think tanks, academics, some activists, uh, and we're uh, beginning to to put together sort of a points of consensus, um, and and are going to release a letter that's going to attempt to to shift um, conventional thinking on the matter. So I, I think there is room, and I, I I think it's one of these issues where where it'll seem impossible until it just seems obvious that this right. suddenly there'll be sort of a tipping point, and it will seem obvious to members of Congress. To, to members of the public that, that this doesn't make sense, that this is actually really undermining our security in, in a whole range of ways, that we could be spending the money better, that the military could be better positioned around the world, um, that the military now, given technological developments, can deploy its forces from bases in the United States uh, just as fast as uh, it can from virtually any base abroad, that there, this is a really outdated policy that dates to the World War II and the early days of the Cold War. And, and it, it needs to, to, to be reformed and, right. and done away with and, and that we need to rethink entirely our, our approach to, to foreign policy and engaging with the rest of the world. Yep. Well put. Well, I'm, first of all, I'm glad that you're, that you didn't say, you know, Dave, it, <laughs> I'm not feeling optimistic at all. So, that letter sounds like that'll be cool. Yeah, we, it feels like we need a vision. Someone needs to paint a picture of a different way, um, you know. But and obviously, maybe it's going to get a little worse before it gets better. It's hard to know. But I, I'm curious your take on sort of the, um, you know, wh- what I would describe as sort of the the. There's a militarization, and it's very subtle throughout our culture. I find it it's fascinating. You know, Obama couldn't get us out of Afghanistan. Trump doesn't seem to be able to do it. You know, even when. And again, I have many issues with him as a president, but even when he floated the idea of, you know, finding a way to remove ourselves from South Korea, and there was this hue and cry, you want to say, you know, isn't that the goal, to find a way to leave at some point? You know, why do we, why do we um, freak out at these ideas? And I'm curious, just from a kind of cultural point of view, you know, the, the way that you see the issue, because... You know, it, it, it does feel like it's difficult. Well, it's difficult in the U.S. to have debates about almost anything these days, it feels like, with polarization and, and with the, how the media has changed. But it feels like this is a particularly tough one because it's hard, seems to, to sort of thread the needle of criticizing military policy without being labeled unpatriotic or unsupportive of the troops or of the country. 
Um, and obviously this issue is not about, that's what this issue is, issue is about. So you have to be able to engage on it in a, in a way. How do you see that, that issue? Because it feels at times really challenging to have these conversations. It is, it is. Uh, I, I, I think there's, there's no way around it and, and we have to face it that, um, that, you know, the military has become something of a religion and, and militarism has been become something of a religion in the United States, given its prevalence in, in our popular culture and every part of our li- lives. But again, a sort of unexamined part of our culture. And um, it has become very difficult to, to challenge military policy, um, in, in part because the military itself has, has very... Um, successfully crafted uh, sort of public relations campaign um, that has has painted uh, anyone who would critique the military or military policy as, as, as you said, as unpatriotic. Um, and, you know, there, it's not just the military, there are other, other forces in our society, Hollywood and, and beyond that, sure. that have done this, the media. Um, but I, I, I think it does mean that that people who are critical need to take that into account and to go out of their way um, to not fall into some sort of knee-jerk uh, right. critique of all things military. Um, that's, that's certainly one of the things I I sought to do with, with my book. Yep. And and uh, so, so to really care about members of the military as much as anyone else in the United States or the world um, and their well-being. Um, but then I also, I think, you know, in terms of the people who are beginning to question the bases policy, there are people in the military itself who are beginning to see that these bases have really outlived their any usefulness they they had, uh, especially people in the in the Air Force and and perhaps to a lesser extent the Navy, um, which can you know deploy their forces over large uh, swaths of territory um, easily. Uh, but um, but there are there are people, um, former army officers and others, who are so so using and, and drawing upon and making common cause with those sorts of voices can be very helpful. Um, but also going out of one's way just to begin by saying, you know, I am not against uh, members of the military. So many people in the country, of course, have some connection to the military one way or another. Right. Um, so you do one does have to to be careful and, and to go out of one's way to to say I'm not saying that everyone in the military is evil or bad. Um, what I'm critiquing here is the system. Yeah, I thought I thought in problem. your book actually it was really um, it, it it seemed obviously very genuine the full scope the way in which you talked about the the whether it's the increasing level of sexual assault on bases that are abroad or it's the psychological impact on the soldiers or their families. There's a whole chunk of your book which really comes from a compassionate point of view about essentially wellness for those that are in the service. Yeah, I think that's that's a critical part of it. They, you know, the bases themselves often look like suburban towns um, with all the amenities that go along, movie theaters, bowling alleys, fast food, housing, uh, hospitals, schools. Um, and in many ways, they provide a really lovely uh, quality of life for members of the military. Uh, it actually has less inequality than most of U.S. society. Everyone has right. health care. Um, in many ways, it's, it's it's a terrific lifestyle, um, but there's this underside, this underbelly, um, where, as you said, there are these shocking rates of sexual assault against uh, people in the military, mostly women, but also also men. Um, there's alcoholism, drug abuse uh, is, is fairly rife. Um, 
And we shouldn't be surprised given what the U.S. government has asked members of the military to do. Um, right. The, the, their work. Uh, those case of those who are deployed to war zones, killing or, or coming and, and risking their lives. Um, uh, but, but around the world, um, being involved in an entire system of war. So it's it shouldn't come as any great shock that that uh, it would be, while on the surface, uh, quite attractive way of life. Uh, if you dig deeper, it's, it's actually quite harmful to, to members right. of the military and their families. Speaking of digging deeper, um, I think I thought one of the fascinating parts of your book, and I think this goes to sort of what you might call the unexamined life of the country, is the way in which you talk about essentially the roots of expansionist, I guess in the context of, the, of North America, that is the right word, but the way in which the, the, the bases, you know, in the prior centuries, as the country was still moving from the East Coast outward, you know, represented in some ways, I wouldn't call it a dress rehearsal, but you have some really fascinating parts of the book that show the spread of forts and whatnot into, at the time, were obviously, you know, indigenous population, Native American nations, or either Spanish territory, what have you. Um, do you think that there's, and obviously there's the whole issue of, of our behavior in the in the Southern Hemisphere, in Central, Central and South America, you know, how do you see that, that whole aspect of what, you know, uh, I would say even akin to our unacknowledged, you know, appreciation for the true history of racial problems in this country, how do you see that aspect of, you know, that there's a strain of this has been present for much, much longer than this Soviet Cold War posturing, and that that maybe has something to do with why we're in the situation that we're in. Yeah, it's it's a great question. Uh, there, there is something new that emerged in World War II uh, that the United States came to occupy bases on a global basis, right? Um, and and that that system of bases remained entrenched after World War II and early days of the Cold War and, and then actually expanded and became more entrenched. But as you said, this is a, there's a longer trajectory that dates to the first days of, of independence when the United States began building a growing number of forts on Native American people's lands. Um, and, and this system of forts gradually expanded outward, westward toward the Pacific and enabled the conquest of territory, the displacement of millions of, of Native American peoples, and of course, the, the death of, of millions of, of Native American peoples in the process as, as Euro-Americans began colonizing the continent. And it also goes back to one of your earlier questions, and, you know, this this colonial history right. uh, that is the United States, uh, imperial history, has largely been ignored and forgotten. Um, and the expansion beyond the North American continent really uh, is directly connected to and flowed out of the, the conquest across the continent. Um, and we can see similar connections to uh, the invasion and occupation of, of Iraq, of Afghanistan, um, the war in, in Vietnam. Um, yep. You know, the, the connections are, are complicated, um, but we, we do need to pay attention to these longer term imperial trends um, and 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 also to longer term anti-imperial uh, movements and and trends that that I think can again give us some reason for for hope right. um, 
that that not everyone has gone along with this program, and right. that we need we need more people to question where the program is today. Yep. No, for sure. Yeah, it's almost like when you know when you think about people talk about people growing up either in an abusive household or the child of an alcoholic, and we think about all these behaviors that repeat themselves generation to generation. And I think we don't think of ourselves as the child of European imperialism, but obviously we are. <laughs> You know what I mean? Uh, even though, you know, it, and I don't think that we've had the totally pernicious, you know, plan underneath it all for the last century. But in terms of what's in the DNA, you know, capitalism, market expansion, you know, spreading, finding places to, you know, grow fruit and extract oil and all the rest of it. Uh, it In some ways, it's been, um, it's been, uh, it's happened with different, different names and different terms that don't sound like the old system, but in many ways wind up being a, a different version of somewhat the same thing. I think that I think that's exactly right. I, I, I think the, the only um, sort of amendment I would would offer is is that uh, these are deeply ingrained patterns, historical patterns that, as you said, uh, flow out of uh, centuries of European imperialism. Um, but but there is you know, the United States has no DNA, um, there are historical patterns, uh, and you know this much better than, than I do as a historian. Um, Amateur historian. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, there's no unchanging essence that is the United States. Right. That, at any moment, the United States government in particular can choose another path. And, and there right. are examples of former empires that have chosen other paths. The British Empire once had a large collection of bases around the world, and in the 1960s and early 70s, it closed most of those bases, um, ran out of money effectively. Right. Um, and at a certain point, the United States will too. Um, I'd like to see a, a change in policy before that happens. Right. Um, yeah, indeed. Can you talk a little bit? I'm just curious about how you got into this because you know you're professor of anthropology and I believe was it your was it your doctoral work that that got you going on Diego Garcia and the story of that of that island in the Indian Ocean tell just tell me a little bit how you kind of found your way into this space yeah I essentially got very lucky and uh, when I was in graduate school asked uh, I was asked by some lawyers to rec uh, to conduct some research um, they were representing a group of exiled people, refugees um, from the Chagos Islands, which are in the middle of the Indian Ocean, very little known, very small, um, where there is a very large U.S. military base on the island of Diego Garcia. And in the late 1960s and early 1970s, the people were simply uprooted and deported and dumped uh, without any resettlement assistance in uh, Mauritius and the Seychelles in the western Indian Ocean. And they've lived there ever since. They've been struggling to go home, demanding the right of return, demanding some proper compensation. And they were, uh, when the, the lawyers reached out to me, they were suing both the U.S. and British governments. And the, right. the lawyers asked me to conduct some research to document the effects of the expulsion on the Chagosians' lives uh, for the cases. Uh, the cases have been up and down affairs, and then the Chagosians have won some tremendous victories in British courts in particular, and those are ongoing now. Right. But this this research really opened my eyes to the this huge collection of bases around the world and 
and the impacts they're having on on people. Uh, it was, you know, like many of us in the United States, I think I had grown up not questioning why there were U.S. bases in Honduras or right. Qatar or uh, Germany, Japan, Italy. Yep, indeed. Um, speaking of bases and obviously the different levels of the giant ones, uh, the, one of the things you talk about in the book, which I feel like is important to discuss for a moment, is this concept of lily pads uh, and these smaller bases because it feels like uh, certainly a path toward maintaining some level at least of, of scope and scale, if not volume, uh, and, uh, and obviously somewhat out of the eyes of maybe the public or even in, uh, people in certain countries where they exist. Can you just talk about what, what lily pads are? Yeah, the, so there is quite a range in that you know, roughly 800 bases, U.S. bases around the world. Uh, there's a range in size from these city-sized bases in Germany and Japan, Korea, Italy, uh, with tens of thousands of troops and, and family members. Uh, two, on the other end of the spectrum, as you said, lily pad bases that really since the turn of the 20th, 21st century, uh, we've seen a growth in the number of these these quite small bases, uh, often in parts of the world where there's been no prior U.S. military presence. And they have on the order of a few hundred U.S. military personnel. Sometimes they're just military contractors. Um, sometimes they host drones, other, other weaponry. Um, and they have been particularly noticeable um, in, in Africa, uh, as well as uh, Eastern and Central Europe, a few in, in, in Asia. Um, again, um, building up a U.S. military presence in a more surreptitious way, both from the U.S. public and from the host nation publics. Um, sometimes they're physically located within a host nation base so right. as to disguise their their presence. And, and it, they, they really represent a growing militarization uh, around the world. And, and frequently the involvement of the United States in wars and conflicts that the U.S. public has no knowledge of or very little knowledge of. You know, prime example is the... U.S. now bases, plural, in Niger, um, where we saw four members of the military killed uh, last year, um, and, and members of the Congress had no idea that there were hundreds, literally hundreds of, of U.S. troops in, in Niger, even you know, members of the Armed Services Committees that are supposed to be overseeing U.S. military activities around the world had no idea. I was going to bring that up. Yeah, that that, that was an example, there. right? You saw that headline, and at least for me, I thought, "Wait a minute, we're there. What are we doing there?" You know, <laughs> that was a total shock. Um, that's amazing to hear that that it was even a surprise. People that should know. Yeah, that definitely it, to me. You know, I, I mean, obviously, I'm. I don't know what the timing is of your letter, and I'm glad that you're feeling a sense of some consensus and perhaps the British model, which is a combination of you know, ceding power to us, which was probably easier to do because we, we sprang from them and just no choice because you're broke, that, you know, we're moving maybe in that direction. But the lily pad thing and the drone thing and some of these technological advancements feel like that's something to keep our eyes on because it would be a way for, you know, to shift from closing massive bases in Japan or Germany, but yet through lily pads and things like drone technology, continuing the, the, the underlying philosophy, which is this kind of global surveillance military posture um that that would come in a different form and and global military intervention of course uh, both right. on large scales and and small scales uh, that the united states has to 
intervene to to create stability and uh, ensure peace and 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 uh, stability of of regions and the globe. And which you know, it's really if if the effects weren't so deadly, it would be comical that the United States would claim to be a force of stability given the way, you know, if we only look at the Middle East, the way the U.S. invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan have destabilized an entire region of the globe and led to hundreds of thousands, if not more, deaths, um, as well as, you know, millions of refugees. And, you know, the, the United States is not solely to blame for for what's going on in the Middle East today. But the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have, I think, you know, there's there's been no real reckoning with with what those have meant and and the the horrific damage that they've caused. It seems like somehow, and perhaps your letter that you guys are working on will start to frame this, I keep thinking to myself, don't people want to have less responsibility? I mean, not that we're even being asked, but, you know, you would think that there would be a vision of scaling back that could be viewed as almost a relief, right? Because we have a lot of things to work on at home. Um, but it's it's like a habit we can't seem to break. It's, you know, particularly in the Middle East, when you think about the Vietnam parallels, it's kind of mind-boggling what has happened in the last 15, 20 years in that region. It's an ingrained, deeply ingrained system and a uh, system under, uh, underlying the system is uh, an economic model uh, in which the military has become, and military spending, have become a major portion of the U.S. economy. Um, right. and major, the Eisenhower you know, half warning, of, right? Exactly. The military-industrial complex is, is far scarier today than it was when Eisenhower warned us when he was leaving office about the, the dangers of the military-industrial complex. And, and they're a major part of why this system of bases is entrenched around the world and part of why the system of military invention, intervention of wars is so deeply entrenched. And, and they're, of course, a major barrier thus to, to changing the system because people are making so much money off war and off this system of war, uh, primarily, you know, major corporations and and uh, their uh, officials and elites um, but of course they're they're ordinary folks who are who are making money off the, the system of war as well and and we need a fundamental transformation um, you know rather than the, the the military budget today that is so far out of whack uh, and out of any proportion to the threats facing the United States it's uh, to say it's a, a waste of money is a tremendous understatement because there are so many pressing needs in the United States and around the world when it comes to education, infrastructure, healthcare, housing, all the things we're not spending on mo- money on when right. we're spending literally hundreds of billions on on bases and, and on the military more broadly uh, on a yearly basis. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're... you're- generally optimistic about some movement. Is there a date when this letter that you guys are working on is going to be published? Yeah. um, Sometime after the election and before Thanksgiving, we should be releasing it. Uh, You can go to overseasbases.net. Overseasbases.net will have information about it. Um, There's also information about bases, uh, including maps that detail the bases around the world on my website, basenation.us basenation.us to learn more. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. Thanks for joining me today, David. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Dave. My thanks again to my guest, David Vine. 
Thanks for listening to USA TBD. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and help us spread the word to family, friends, and the multitudes on social media. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at USA TBD. Thanks to my editor and engineer, Alex Brazell. We'll see you next time.